Good, how are you? Good, good. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Sorry about my voice. I've been losing it. I don't know what's going on. Oh, no worries. You sound you sound completely fine. You're all good. Okay. Do you want to just get started? Sure. All right, sure. cool. Let's talk about it. All right, awesome. So uh, I'm excited that you're here, actually, because your bio is really interesting. There were so many different ways to go, and I was trying to think which way, you know, you've been... <laughs> head of a department, uh, right, of the biology department at your school. Yep. Um, you can talk about physiology and all of the health aspects, but you also have a new book. So yep. you know what? Why don't you you go ahead and, and we'll cover all the bases, I'm sure. Sure. So why don't I just introduce myself a little bit? Um, so my name is Paul Martino. Um, I'm the current chair of the biology department at Carthage College, which is in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, which you may have heard about from uh, some of the riots last summer. Yeah. And uh, not very far from the college. And uh, I'm going to be the incoming dean of professional studies. And uh, like you said, I have a pretty wide, wide, varied background in, in academia. And I've sort of tooled around here and there. My, mine's a long and winding path through getting to where I'm at. So I've had a lot of strange jobs and I've done a lot of th different things uh, before I became a, a professor. So, um, and I'm originally from New York and I know you're in New York. Yeah. Yeah. I'm correct? in New York. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's so. good. Yeah. I'm in New York. So tell me, you, you had, uh, you said you have like a atypical path. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was like a lot of students in high school. I was a pretty good student. I played some sports and, thought I wanted to be a physician, like a lot of people. Went to college, um, went to SUNY Stony Brook for about a year and a half. That didn't work out, didn't like it. Ended up graduating from Dowling College, which is in Oakdale, New York on Long Island, which is no longer there, uh, unfortunately. And um, took a year off and uh, worked as a stock clerk at Abraham and Strauss department stores in Huntington, which is now Macy's. Oh, year. no way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is now Macy's and uh, decided to go back and uh, ended up doing a master's in exercise physiology at the human performance lab at Ball State for two years. Um, so go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So physiology, I was trying to understand it. Essentially it's, it's the study of the human body. Is that, Correct. is that right? Correct. But more for Correct. practical purposes, like, um, it there's it's about exercise health wellness yeah i mean and it's it's everything right and you can subspecialize in, in exercise and there's all kinds of subspecialty subspecialties so um but yeah that's basically it so i went and um i got a, a master's in exercise science exercise physiology at the human performance lab which was pretty famous at the time when i got there it was a pretty cool place to be and uh we studied glucose uptake so what what makes what makes your body able to to take glucose that you eat right glucose is a simple sugar um, that most um, carbohydrates break down into right and it gets into your blood after it's gone through your digestive system and the interesting thing is that 
when you exercise, you don't actually need insulin to make that sugar move from your blood into your cells. And so the which time you do, we, which you do in, in regular times, right? Most of the time, that's what happens. You eat some kind of sugar and your, your pancreas releases insulin and the insulin allows that sugar to move from your blood into your muscles, your fat, wherever. Gotcha. Well, during exercise, you can do the same thing after exercise, but it doesn't, it, you don't need insulin. And at the time we didn't understand how that works. So that was one of the things I studied. That's so, cool. That was pretty well, cool. How, did, how does it work in, in like two brief two sentences. sentences? So basically the, the calcium, same calcium you get from milk is involved and released and it triggers essentially a slightly different path that does the same thing. So it's great news, you know, if you're a diabetic. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You can move glucose without, so if you're type one diabetic who can't produce any glucose, I mean, any, excuse me, insulin, that's fantastic because you can still have some sugar. And as long as you're staying very active, you can move that sugar without the insulin. So you can use less insulin. Nice. Yeah. So that's, so this, I end up doing that. And then again, it gets a little windy because I thought, now nah, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I took a few more years off, ended up meeting my future wife there, who's from Wisconsin, which is where I live now. And so I decided to, to, I waited tables for about six months, went back to New York, lived with my parents. And then I moved out to Wisconsin and, uh, and I moved and got a job at the medical college of Wisconsin. And I worked there for four and a half years as a technician in a physiology department. So, so when you work in a physiology, phys, physiology department, what do you do? You, are you basically a consultant? People come to you with um, like, you know, they, maybe their shoulder hurts and you can, since you're exercise physiology, you can help them. Yeah, no. So we were, you know, this, yeah, no, we, um, we, we did research. So I worked for uh, okay. uh, the department of physiology, the medical college, it's, it's pure research. So I wa worked for a man by the name of Bert Forrester who studied control of breathing. So how breathing uh, is controlled by the brain. And so everybody in the department that I, that I worked in studied either hypertension or some other kind of physiology. So we were just research, right? So I did research for four and a half years. And uh, so that was great, right? I was a technician. So every day I came in and did some studies. I got to learn a whole lot. And again, another four and a half years, right? I took a year off after college, took another four and a half years off. In between there, I, I bust tables, I waited tables, I worked as a stock clerk. I uh, worked seven years before that as a butcher. I mean, you name it. I've, I've done oh, a lot wow. of different, yeah, seven <laughs> years as a butcher. Um, so, so I got started a little bit late. Um, and then I ended up um, applying to the PhD program in that same department. And I ended up, um, my mentor was my old boss, uh, Dr. Forrester. So I ended up getting my PhD there. And then typically what you do is you end up going on to a postdoctoral fellowship, right? So you got to do some more research, but kind of got to do it on your own now, but less mentorship. So I ended up at Wright State, um, which is in Dayton, Ohio. Nice. A That's a, I've been to Dayton, Ohio. It's a, it's a nice small town. It's cool. It is. It's a great little town. We loved, we loved uh, being there, my family and I. Uh, and then moved back to Wisconsin, tried my hat at um, working in um, bio research industry, 
So I worked for a company that did studies for a lot of like big pharmaceutical companies. Nice. So the way that works is a lot of big pharmaceutical companies, um, they want to try a new drug or a potential drug. And it's actually more expensive for them to study that potential drug in-house. In-house, you mean? In their own facilities. In their own facilities. Yeah. So what they do is they subcontract out and they, they subcontract out to these CROs or these contract research organizations. So it's a, it's a for-profit company. It was a small company. And they said, we have this potential drug. We want you to study it for a couple of months and tell us what you find. So I was a study director. So I, I created the studies and we, you know, we, we tried to figure out if that drug was useful. Sometimes it was a diabetic drug. Sometimes it was, you know, anti-hypertension drug, right? Anti-high blood pressure. And then, you know, let's say for instance, if we could do this study for $50,000, just to pick a number, not that that means anything, you know, for, for a big company, a big pharmaceutical company, it might cost them, you know, three times that much to do the same study. And, and why is that? Is that because of the regulatory environment they're and in all a, that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, they're, they're in a, they have to, they, they are in a, a classification that's called good laboratory practices and their staff gets paid really, really well. And so between fringe benefits and the staff and good laboratory practices and their facilities are expensive to maintain, uh, it just, it just, it, it balloons for them. So when they're trying to get a look-see at something, oftentimes these little companies, which have low overhead, right? right, They're still doing quality work, but they just have lower overhead. Yeah, right? no, that, that totally makes sense. And that's how they that's do it. And then, if, and then if it's promising, then they'll take that drug back. They'll take the data, which is theirs, and then they'll start you know, doing the further research on their own. So yeah, it's, it's sort of ironic, right? Sometimes it's less expensive to do the research outside of your organization than inside of your organization. Yeah. Um, th- this is like a very brief aside too, but do you yeah. know, do you, do you know if uh, the vaccine was developed in this similar way? <sighs> That's a tough one to say. I do not know. Now that vaccine or the origins of those types of vaccines, that, that kind of research started way back with SARS and MERS, which are two different other forms of coronavirus. And so they had a lot of that started, you know, 20 and 12 years ago. And I do not know if they did it. I'm going to say probably not because that's virology. And it gets really complicated because when you're studying a virus, there are different kinds of facilities that you have to have to prevent Right, escape from a virus. There's different, there's four or five different levels. I can't remember because I'm not a virologist. I think it's like a BL4 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because if it gets out, well, yeah, <laughs> you're going to have a problem. So we, we, the companies I work for didn't do that kind of work. So my guess is that if they did contract out any of that, I doubt it. Um, it would have been to very specific types of companies. And there's, that's the type of research you, you just can't save a buck on, right? Like you just- Yeah, no, that makes dangerous. sense. So, that makes sense. but I don't know, yeah. So anyway, so I did that and then I decided, well, I really love teaching and I really love students. And so I, I didn't, I didn't do it very long contract. It just wasn't for me. I love students, I love people. Uh, I'd love doing the research and so, uh, shortly after, thereafter, ended up at Carthage College, uh, started uh, roughly 12 years ago in 2009, 
and I've been there ever since. And uh, yeah, I love, I love teaching young people. And uh, so, yeah, there you go. Which, which led me to, you know, this book that we wrote over the pandemic because um, there were lessons that we learned. So one of the things I do as a professor and lots of professors do, you probably know this is you have to advise students, right? Right. And you're constantly, so as an advisor, you're, you're, your psychologist, your engineer, your therapist, right? You're whatever the student needs. And so you're constantly giving out advice. You're listening quite a bit. And so my co-authors and I, one of them is a chiropractor. Uh, the other one is also a anatomy and physiology professor. And all in the same school? Yeah. So, so Justin Miller is also um, a biology professor in my department. And uh, he and I have a similar background. And then Nate Garowitz was one of my former students oh. who, gradu- who graduated in 2013, ended up going to DC school. And then um, we go on a, a trip. We do service trip. It's a class service trip to Nicaragua, to the island of Ometepe every year that we've been going on. In 2011, Nate had gone. And so we had kept in touch and when the, the pandemic hit was soon after we had returned from Nicaragua in January and we had talked about doing a project, but it was sort of, you know, one of those passing things where, hey, we're, let's do a project, Martino. They all call me Martino. Right? That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they call me. It's cool. You know, we're a small college. And I said, sure, let's do a project. And then Justin Miller and I talked and we said, you know, we should do something. We should do some kind of project. And then we got at this shut point, down. At this point, you know what the project is or you just know is it more like you guys just want to work together or yeah we just have a vague idea of what it is yeah so we we wanted to work together right and so nate's like we got to do a project because because when we're in nicaragua it's service trip we we're down there uh, it's a medical part medical mission part water mission and nate was coming back to adjust some of the uh nicaraguans and our students because we have a full busy days. They're helping out our students, helping out in the clinics or they're helping on water projects and it's hot, you know, it's near the equator. It's 11 and a half degrees North of the equator. And uh, we'd sit on the porch at night and, you know, talk about life. Mm-hmm. It's dark at like five or six o'clock every day. And you're talking about life with other faculty and students. And it's a great trip. Right. And Nate's like, yeah, we agree on a lot of things. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we do. He's like, we should do a project. And, and I didn't know, you know, we met, but I said, yeah, let's, let's do something, right? Because I have a sort of that entrepreneurial spirit. I've always had it. Clearly my background is, I, it's been this winding path, right? I haven't taken a very typical, you know, scholarly path. Like some people go bachelor's, master's, or they skip the master's, they go to a PhD, you know, they end up at Harvard or, you know. That's probably good. It keeps you it, it keeps you grounded in in reality. You know when it does. because when you've been in academia your whole life, you kind of I mean you, you have the theory of everything, but yes. now you get to have a bit of the you know the nitty gritty. I mean, if you were a butcher for seven years, how many professors can say that? Yeah, yeah, and and so you know I agree one hundred percent. So it, it's kept me very grounded. So now that I'm moving into the dean position in July right? I can see things. So it's, it's like I, I, knew, I learned a new language, right? So it's like I have this ordinary everyday person type of language because I've worked in all these different essential businesses, right? And then, <laughs> but then I understand the academic workplace too. And I understand students. And, and so I'm sort of like a translator in some ways. I haven't forgotten what it was like to grow up and struggle. And 
you know, a lot of people out there are, are, you know, there's brilliant people. There's, you know, you got Elon Musk, you got people like Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein. I mean, these just these brilliant people, uh, these physicists, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? That's not me. And, and so I had to struggle for everything that I earned. And, and so that, that humbles you. And so I'm very grateful for what I've been able to accomplish. And I don't ever forget how I got here. And I think that's in some ways a gift. I never thought about it that way when I was going through it, right? You never do yeah. when you're struggling. No, I agree. Yeah. So it's always looking back, you realize that yeah, it's, it's as much as it's like dark moment that you hate without it, you wouldn't be where you are today and you can't separate yourself from it. So you just have to, eventually you see how it, it is a part of you. It's this unnecessary evil. Yeah, no, it, it is. And growth um, comes through struggle, right? You have to struggle. Um, there's a thing there's a concept in science called hormesis, right? And hormesis is basically that a little bit of something that is toxic for you in large amounts. So for instance, like the sun, right? If you get too much sun, you get burnt. Almost everybody's been burned at some time. In their yeah, life. I have a bad so one right really, now. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's really bad for you, right? But in very, very small doses, 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, it's actually really good for you because that's one of the major ways that you produce vitamin D and vitamin D is, has so many benefits, anti-cancer benefits, it helps your immune system, right? So the same thing can be very useful to you or not useful. Another example, something that's near and dear to my heart is exercise, right? Yeah. In extreme amounts, now, and that varies for everybody and depends on how well you're trained, but in extreme amounts can become really, really dangerous. It can break you down. You can break body parts, right? But if you do it in small episodes, multiple times per week over many, many years, that's how people get more fit, right? Because, but that's, but the, so it's the same stressor can either be good for you or bad for you, which is sort of ironic, right? And so uh, there's an author by, um, the name of Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb. He oh, wrote yeah. A number of books, mm -hmm. The Black Swan. My and, uh, favorite book is Anti Fragile. Yeah. And so he talks about this. And when I read this, this was near and dear to my heart as a physiologist because he, one of the things he brings up is how, you know, exercise and how that provides anti fragility, right? And so for your viewers, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, there's fragile, and everybody knows what fragile is. You, you take a uh, a wine glass, you drop it on the floor and it breaks. That's something that's fragile. Then there's resilient. And you take a plastic wine glass, you drop it on the floor, nothing bad happens to it, but nothing good happens to it either. And then humans are anti-fragile. And he, so he coined this term. And anti-fragile means that every time you stress the person, and there's different ways to stress, because stress is a very complicated word, right? If you give that person this hormetic stress, right? Just enough stress so that it doesn't hurt them, they become stronger each time. And so there's this anti-fragility built into humans. And so if you don't struggle throughout your life, then you can't grow and you can't grow mentally, you can't grow spiritually, you can't, can't grow physically because you need the stress. So the stress gets a bad rap 
and it's complicated what stress is, but you have to be able to recover from it. So it's sort of interesting, right? Because it's sort of counterintuitive to what people think it is like, oh, stress is just bad. Well, chronic stress is bad, right? Like if you're always anxious about everything and you're scared about, I don't know, whatever you're scared about all the time and you're just always scared, well, that's probably not healthy for you and it's probably not good. But if you get scared uh, when you hear a gunshot, then yeah, that's, that's probably, probably pretty a good. good thing, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's a protective mechanism. And then when you realize it was just a car backfiring, then you're like, oh, it was just a car backfiring. And so, but the, the mechanisms that kick in, the physiological mechanisms are the same, except that human body animals were designed to be stressed for a short period of time. And you either freeze, you fight, or you flee, right? And then it's over. But you're not supposed to be chronically stressed. And that, again, is complicated what that actually means. But yeah, so it's kind of cool, right? And so the book that we wrote talks about struggling quite a bit, right? And, and growth through struggling. So we ended up, the three of us, and it had different iterations, we each wrote a section. And each one of the sections has letters that we wrote to our younger selves. So the name of the book is Letters to Our Younger Selves, a Combat Manual for Mindful Living. And so Justin Millers, the other biologist, wrote the first section and he talks about, I'll just read some of them, just some of the, the chapters and their letters, struggling, failure, self-discipline, meekness, quiet strength, success at long last. The, Nate wrote a bunch of letters to, we, we each wrote about eight or nine letters, reason versus purpose, gratitude, don't go it alone. And then Nate did some, some health stuff too, because he's a physician. And then mine are, the theme of mine were, so both of my parents were immigrants to the United States. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Where were uh, they both, from? They're both from Italy. So my, uh, my mother was from Naples and came to the United States in 1969. And my father, father was from a, um, an area um, called Molisano, which is kind of northeast of Rome-ish in the mountains. And he came in 1954 and they met in the United States. So I figured, well, what kind of a theme am I gonna have? Because we all sort of had these themes. Nate is mostly health, Justin is kind of similar to mine, struggling. And then mine was, and it's really the first letter that I write to myself is think like a successful child of immigrants, right? And so that was sort of the theme of my section. And so each letter, and they're not very long, right? So imagine in the old days, I mean, it's hard for you to imagine probably, but I'm, I'm still old enough to remember writing letters to people and getting letters and that being a thing, right? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. And it's a cool thing, right? You get letters and you, they're just a really old fashioned thing. But so I, all of my letters take this theme. And so the first letter of mine sort of sets up the section and what, what I'm going to talk about, but it's all based on being the son. And I have a, I have a younger brother too, uh, of two immigrant parents and some of the lessons I learned. And most of them, you know, they're relatively, um, target, you know, me being a son of immigrants, a couple of them are sort of not really, but, but that's basically the theme of my chapter, right? So, and is it about uh, 
social integration or why why is the immigration aspect of it important yeah because because of the things that i no not so much about the social integration it's more about the lessons so i can set up sort of the background so my father came in 1954 and he came on a ship with his father now Prior to him, his grandfather, my great-grandfather had come to the United States a couple of times and gone back. So it wasn't actually my father and my grandfather who were the first ones here. And um, he worked as a plumber's apprentice and then he had his own grinding business. So he used to drive around in um, what looked like an ice cream truck and sharpening tools for people. <laughs> what he did, right? He sharpened lawnmower blades, knives, scissors. And... Anyway, so- I can see a there's fifth... a fascination with- sharp objects in the family yeah, with you being yeah, a butcher. Yeah, butcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. I never thought about it that way. And so, you know, he only had a fifth grade education. And so everything he did was very pragmatic, right? And my mother had an eighth grade education, was pretty smart, uh, but decided to come to the United States in 69 because the family had split. Some of the family had come over, not, not, not for any bad reason, but they had come over to the United States and her, her idea was to be able to sort of keep the two sides, the Italian, because I still have uncles and aunts that are in Italy um, and cousins together. So we didn't forget who we were. And, uh, and then they met in Brooklyn. So, but anyway, the, the idea was of my section is, you know, I kind of saw the world from a different perspective, right? So how did I grow up? Because Actually, when I actually thought about it, the way I saw the world was a little different than even my friends on the same block, right? And even through high school, even through college, even to this day, there's, there's still this tinge of the way I grew up. It's not a bad thing. It's not a judgmental thing. It's just, it was the environment I grew up in. And so I got to see the world. So for instance, my first language wasn't English. It was Italian. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know how to speak English for the first couple of years of my life, apparently. And so, and so you grew up in a very Italian community, I assume? Um, it, when we were in Brooklyn, it was very Italian. We moved out to Ronkonkoma, which is about 50, eh, 55 miles east of New York City, right? The Long Island Railroad. It's the last regular stop. And there were a lot of Italians. I mean, just to give you an idea, my next door neighbors, right? Giordano, Blasi, my last name's Martino, across the street to Sario. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of Italian people there, but it's just, it's just the way it was because a lot of them had moved out from Queens and New York. And so, but, but most of them were second, third generation, you know, some were first. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was an interesting mix, but you know, so I got to see the world through different eyes, right? So some of the things like I, I wanted to be a good student and my parents valued education. So they always said, you got to go to college because my father was blue collar. My mother had been a seamstress and, you know, she was blue collar in education. They came to the United States because they wanted their children to be educated. They wanted to have the freedom right. to be able to grow. And so that was great. Right. So my brother and I were good students. Generally, I was an okay student. I, I liked learning, but there was also this, this ethic, this work ethic and this, you know, you, you don't complain, you, you know, you're, you don't, um, you don't whine, you work really hard. Um, 
you thank people for helping you, you're kind to them, right? You're civil to them. You um, try to learn as much as you can. Education's important. But I saw that from an immigrant, right? Because I saw the things that they didn't have and that they wanted. And so I appreciated the sacrifices that they made, right? I'm, I'm here because of the sacrifices my parents made and the things that they didn't get to do. And so I was able to do that. So I sort of tell this story to myself, my younger self, obviously, of here's, here, here are the things, here are some of the dumb things I've done. And so it's, uh, I think, you know, some of the letters are entertaining, right? And so I, I tell some shame, shameful stories about <laughs> my, uh, the things I did, you know, which is sort of counterintuitive. So, you know, when I talk to my students, they're like, oh, Dr. Martini, you're a genius, you got a PhD, you got a master's, you did a postdoc, you worked in industry, right? Like, and I tell them, no, I'm not. I'm not a genius. I'm just a person who worked really, really hard, but they don't ever believe you, right? And so I figured, well, why not write a, a book? Why not write these letters to myself? And, and I thought about our girls. We have two girls, my wife and I. And I thought, you know, these are helpful lessons to say, hey, you think I'm all that. Let me tell you some stories about some really dumb stuff I've done. Yeah, and that's so usually a lot more stories. powerful, actually, as a role model. Most role models that are really good are role models that have struggle and can and and exactly kind of comes back to the same thing without the struggle you know are you really you're just kind of this genius and it doesn't you you don't feel relatable and it it doesn't feel like a lesson can be really gotten from you because yeah yeah no that makes sense so so that's the way i wrote you know some funny stories uh i think they're funny i tell them about myself i protect you know i change names (laughs) <laughs> uh, to protect the innocent, some when I was in, you know, middle school, some when I was in college, some of the really dumb stuff I did, and looking back on how much I learned from them, right? So hopefully, that those kinds of stories resonate with people, and it and really was written for younger people, 16 to 36, uh, you know, I consider that pretty young for me, um, just because I grew up at a time when you could still, you know, I mean, to give you an idea, to give your audience an idea, right? You grew up at a time, and this is very common, where, you know, during the summers, get up at like seven o'clock, couldn't get us up to go to school, but during the summer, you get up at seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, you, you went and knocked on kids' doors, you jumped on your bikes, and you were gone. Sometimes you didn't even come home for lunch all day. Your parents had no idea where you were. Oh, that sounds really the amount nice. of trouble that we got ourselves into and get got ourselves out of and the things that could have hurt us, killed us, gotten us in jail. I mean, it, it, you name it, it probably almost happened to us. So it was just a different type of childhood, right? You know, and it's the same thing. It come, it's still, there's still that common theme. It's, it's the idea of being anti-fragile, right? Because you came yes. out of it and you were able to expose yourself to some crazy wild stuff, yes. but- you got stronger because of it. And that's kind of yes. missing today, I think. Yeah. And so, but doesn't make me special, right? Like you talk to anybody my age, I'm 50 years old this year. So it's a pretty common story, right? But yeah. it's something that certainly my kids don't have it because they didn't grow up that way, right? And a lot of people don't have it. And so you hear your parents or your grandparents or uncles and aunts or older people say it and you're like, ah, you're bull- that's, that's not true. Well, no, it's true. And so if you tell these stories, hopefully 
it helps people to say, well, if he did it, if they did it, and then they were able, and he took this winding road, you know, I don't really talk about the winding road as much, um, didn't sort of didn't fit into the book, right? It wasn't like an autobiography, but he was able to do this. He's, he's you know, his career was probably delayed by about 10 years, but in that 10 year period, plus my childhood, I learned so many skill sets that I now use in management, right? In leadership that I would never have known had I not, you know, had these experiences. And so now I read books about leadership and management and all of that. And, and, and now they have names for these things that I learned, right? But I just thought, well, you know, I didn't have a name for them. I just learned these lessons, right? And uh, it was just part of living. So yeah, so we, so we wrote a book, we had a good time doing it. Um, we hope that it helps some people that it's entertaining. And it was, you know, we, we thought about what would 16 to 30 year olds, 18, 20 year olds, uh, students, right? Cause I teach students from 18 to 22. It's what your typical college student yeah. is. And so, you know, what, what would they want to read? Well, they'd want it to be short. So we picked letters cause letters are short. They'd want them to be funny right? There had to be some swearing involved just because, <laughs> I mean, that keeps it a little bit more real. So there's a little bit of that. And there's always sort of a moral to the story. And then there's some entertainment. I'm like, and so students of mine that have bought the book and we've gotten some feedback on it say, well, that's pretty funny, Martino. I can't even believe you did that. Well, I did, right? And it's the truth and I'm no worse off because of it. So it, it was a fun experience and it was something positive to do during the pandemic, right? So many stories of tragedy. And so my co-authors and I thought we can get together, we can build camaraderie. Um, we could do something that's fun. We got together once a week and talked about our letters and edited. And, and then we decided, okay, well, maybe we should publish it. Cool. Yeah, that's Let's really awesome. It. I love the idea. And it is, it does definitely, even to me, like I'm, I'm young, I'm, I'm, you know, under 25 and it, the idea of it appeals to me, the short form, um, there, there's definitely something in there that I could find. I like it. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we, um, we, yeah, we had a good time doing it. And, um, so now we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get out there and we've been saying to ourselves, you know, let's, let's talk to more people. Let's, let's get ourselves out there and start talking about some of this stuff. And, there's so much negativity out there in the world. And so we're like, we got it. Somebody's got to start, right? Like somebody's got to start being positive. We're honest, but you know, there's gotta be some middle ground for people to start coming together again. And if telling a story about something foolish that we did when we were young makes you laugh and brings you a little bit of joy and gives you some lesson and that helps you feel better about life. And then you end up treating somebody better because of that. Um, well, then, then we've done our job, right? Then we've done yeah. our job. We help make the world a little bit of a better place. So um, yeah, so it was, it, it was fun. I'm glad we did it. Um, and uh, we're just, like I said, just trying to get the word out and trying to help more people. And we've got other projects in the, in the works. Um, we created a small company. We're not exactly sure what direction we're going, but we really want to do, we want to try to do some good. And um, 
you know, just help people. Um, all of us are still, you know, working in our day jobs per se, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. It, That's it awesome. Be interesting. Right? I love it. Very cool. Um, so transitioning a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about respiratory physiology, because you said sure. at one point that you were studying um, breathing and, yep. and I find it very interesting uh, because I don't know the science behind it, but I like to practice mindfulness when possible. Yes. And I'm sure there's some links. And yep. um, do you know Wim Hof? Yeah, Wim Hof does some great stuff. And the interesting thing about Wim Hof uh, is they're actually they've actually they're actually published studies on his work and what yeah he, does. he he was he was he <laughs> this guy's crazy he injected himself with some kind of disease and then yeah. <laughs> just breathed his way through it i mean it's yes. he's an incredible guy yeah so he hyperventilates right i've tried the technique it's it's interesting i've i've tried it a few times and i haven't really stuck with it but but there's something about breathing as goes your breathing right goes your physiology and so wim hof and people like him have have tapped into this thing right because if you think about it breathing how do people breathe when they're nervous and stressed well one of the things they do is when they breathe when they're stressed i don't know if you can see my shoulders yeah. is they'll take a breath and they'll do this yeah, the shoulders go up. Well, the problem with that is when, when you do that, that's part of the stress response, right? And the way you're supposed to breathe is you're supposed to take a breath in 360 degrees around your chest, around your torso. And so you're supposed to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And then so he extends that right? And he does this hyperventilation protocol, which he gets really, really good at. And so yes, he his immune systems amplified because of it. I've seen, you know, videos of him melting ice. That's why they call him the Iceman, right? And he does these amazing things breathing wise and by controlling his breath. So the stuff I did probably wasn't as interesting as what Win Hoff is doing, <laughs> but, but we were studying the neural control of breathing. So within the brain, there's a, there's a couple of areas within your brain one of them is called the brainstem. And the brainstem is this area that's got these three parts. It's called it, the midbrain. Right here, right? At the top of the spinal cord? Yeah, it's at the top of the spinal cord. And the back part, the, the final part uh, that it taps into the spinal cord is called the medulla oblongata. And so uh, one of the things that I was studying, we were studying, and the labs that I went through, my, my PhD and my postdoc, were these chemosensitive areas, these areas that sense carbon dioxide. So, in the in the brain yep yep so most of your breathing the reason you breathe right now you're at you're at rest right so this is called eupnea and the the main trigger that keeps you breathing is carbon dioxide levels in your blood that is it's fascinating. not oxygen right so you have more than enough oxygen at sea level so under normal circumstances, it's not the oxygen that's driving it, right? Now, if you, if, you, if you are depleted of oxygen, if you start to go to altitude, you start climbing. Like if you go to Denver, right? You're roughly a mile above sea level. You go to Leadville, Colorado, you go above 10,000 feet above sea level, right? 
you go to Mount Kilimanjaro, you get even higher, right? The, uh, the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere decreases. Then, because it's so low, that will start to control your breathing. But under normal circumstances, like we are right now, it's the amount of CO2 that accumulates in your blood. And the reason that it drives it is because CO2, carbon dioxide, can get converted into hydronium ion or hydrogen ion. Basically, it gets converted into acid. Okay. Okay. So if, if too much CO2 accumulates in your blood, okay, then what it does is it makes your blood more acidic because your blood is about, has a pH, right? About neutral is seven, right? It's zero to 14 is the scale with anything under seven being acidic and anything above seven being basic, right? And your blood's about 7.3, 7.4. And that's where it wants to say, right? And the amount of CO2 that you breathe off is dictated by the amount of CO2 that your cells produce at any given second, any given minute, right? So like when you're exercising, you produce more CO2. Why? Where'd the CO2 come from? Your cells are creating ATP, which is the, which is the fuel system for your cell, right? In, in the process of creating ATP, you create metabolic garbage. That's what I like to call it. And one of the byproducts <laughs> is carbon CO2. dioxide. And CO2, when it starts to accumulate in your blood, makes, starts to make it more acidic. And the problem with that is that the acidity changes how all of the proteins in your body function. In a rapid way, I assume, right? That's why Correct. you have to react to it immediately. Correct. So every cell in your body has a different pH that it likes to be at. So like the cells inside your stomach can go down to very, very low pHs and they're fine because they have this mucus coating. Low pH is very acidic, right? Correct. Correct. But in your intestines, it varies. It can go very, it can go from neutral to very, very basic, right? And so it depends on the cells where they're located and what kind of pH they like. So some cells like a pH of eight, some cells like a pH of nine, right? And so on and so on. So if, if the pH of the blood, which goes everywhere, starts to change dramatically, right? The, those cells, they don't work right. They like to be in the Goldilocks zone, in this sweet spot, right? And so if those cells, which are made up of protein and fats and carbohydrates, don't work well, you start having problems, right? So your body defends the CO2, the pH. It's, there's few things in your body that the body will defend vigorously. And the pH of your blood is one of them and CO2. So you have to regulate CO2. So normally you don't accumulate much CO2 and when you do, you blow it off, okay? But so let's take an instance where you go into a high CO2 environment. So right? would that be something like, does stress cause that, for example? Uh, so it could, it could, but normally you'd be in a, a place like you'd be breathing, like let's say you're in bed and you're breathing in your pillow, mm -hmm. okay? What you'll do is you'll blow off CO2 into your pillow, but then when you inhale again, you'll, you'll inhale the sum of the CO2, which you just blew out, right? That's called rebreathing. And if you do that for several minutes, 
you'll start accumulating more CO2 in your blood because it's going back and forth the CO2. Your pH of your blood starts to drop. And when that starts to happen, you breathe harder. You're gotcha. blowing it off. You're blowing more CO2 out into the pillow, but you're breathing it back. You breathe more. Now, in a normal person, you just breathe a lot. And you're just... And you're like, why am I breathing so hard? It's because is that why we paint when we wear masks? Is that <laughs> yes, that's part of it. Part of it is because there's there's actually a decrease in oxygen too. So that's it's a double whammy. You're rebreathing CO2 and the amount of oxygen you're breathing in is lower. So your body gets a double hit. Okay. But that CO2 makes you rebreathe. And so you breathe a lot. So if you could imagine, let me give you an example of a situation. So if you're in a a submarine, or you are in the International Space Station, everybody that's on that is breathing out CO2. They have to have what are called scrubbing devices, okay? And those scrubbing devices, they, they essentially attach the CO2 to them so they can pull the CO2 out of the air so that they can keep the CO2 content in those areas low. Because if it gets too high, eventually, so, for instance, if the CO2 gets high enough, now what do I mean? Really high, like 100% CO2 will kill you. It's toxic. It and how fast, right away? Pretty quickly. Because of the acidity. Yeah, yep. 100% so CO2 will kill you. Yep, if you take a tank, of, so we have, we have CO2 tanks in our lab. I have 100% CO2. Nobody breathes in the CO2, right? But at 100%, <laughs> it won't take very long to kill you. Because yeah, it'll, it'll basically throws off all of your physiology. But so, so getting to those level, those toxic level take a really long time. So in the atmosphere, just to give you an example, right? The, the atmosphere has 0.04%, right? So, so not very much, 0.04%. That's not even a half a percent. That's right, 10 times less than a half a percent. So, but you could be in a situation like, for instance, on the International Space Station or in a submarine, if you're not, the scrubbers aren't working, where you could get up to 1%, 2%, maybe even 6 or 7%. If you're at 6 or 7% CO2, you're going to be breathing like crazy. Your breathing will double or triple. So if you're normally breathing 15 times per minute, you'll be breathing at 30 to 40, 45 times per minute. Wow. Because your body's trying to get rid of the CO2. Even if the rest is all oxygen. Correct. Correct. Because it's toxic. It can become toxic. Now, again, if you're in, a, if you're healthy, right, if you're healthy, then you can, it's uncomfortable, but it won't kill you at that level. You've got to go a lot higher than that for it to kill you. But the body doesn't know that, right? Your physiology thinks that, oh, this is bad. I need to blow off CO2 because the acidity is getting too low, right? And so it's becoming too, too acidic. So so it's very rare. So, you know, on the International Space Station, Elon Musk and his group thinking about going to Mars are going to have to think about this. So we do some space research, too, with the Wisconsin Space Grant Consortium. Nice. Thinking That's about super interesting. What would happen. Yeah. And on a submarine, the same type of thing might happen. There's something called sleep and not sleep apnea, SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. Right. And that's a, that's something that used to be called crib death. And one of the ideas, and nobody actually knows what causes it for sure, but one of the ideas is that 
you have an infant that is born that is less than a year old, okay? There's something not developed or something, something gets out of whack in their breathing development in the brainstem somewhere, probably. And they have their nose embedding, okay? So they're breathing the CO2. Now you and I have a developed respiratory system. If we do that, we'll just keep breathing a lot. And then eventually what'll happen is we'll just turn our head, okay? Well, in some of these children, and nobody's ever witnessed this before, so we don't know. They and you obviously this, can't, you can't, can't test but, it. <laughs> right, you can't test it. It's hard to test it. You can, but not, not on infants, obviously. So they, one of the hypotheses is that they breathe this CO2, they keep rebreathing it. And because there's something wrong with the medulla or the pons or some other part of the neural control system for breathing, they breathe a lot, but they don't end up turning their head. And so what, what ends up happening is the CO2 accumulates at such a higher level that it ends up causing death. Now, do we know that for sure? We do not. There are other hypotheses too. And do the, are the kids who die in an infant uh, death syndrome usually on their stomach? So yes, and that, so yes, usually on their stomach. Some of them are, right, so they have to do an autopsy after this. Um, some, of, some researchers think that it's, something, it's, a, it's an arrhythmia, so some of these kids have arrhythmias, so heart problems. Mm -hmm. um, but so back in the 80s and the 90s, there was a, a, a researcher, uh, several researchers, but Hannah Kinney out of Harvard had done multiple studies on, on these children because she's a pathologist, and that's the type of physician who sees people when they're dead, right? That does the autopsies. And she was studying this and realized that a part of the brainstem that produces a, um, a neurotransmitter called serotonin was out mm -hmm. of whack. So we don't for sure know what causes SIDS, but one of the hypotheses is that in these kids, they had this bedding. And so when I was a child, for instance, they would, they put me, people of my era on their stomach to sleep because children like to sleep on their bellies. What, what happened in the, in the early nineties is they had something called the back to sleep campaign. And they started to have these ideas and started to have these um, guesses that maybe it was being prone and the bedding that was causing some of these deaths. So what they started recommending is no more soft bedding, soft animals for infants and that you put them on their back, okay? So you're young enough that you were probably put on your back as an infant. As soon as they did that, they instrumented that, they uh, implemented that, the death rate from SIDS dropped by 50%. Wow. Yes, this was in the 90s. So there were other problems, which I won't go into, that were then associated with putting kids on their back and not on their stomachs. But so at least, at least there's some evidence to suggest it was something about being on their stomachs, it, the soft bedding. So they, when you put you in a crib, no soft bedding, no soft pillows, no stuffed animals, and you put your kids on your back. So that helped quite a bit. Do we 100% know? No, we do not know exactly what causes SIDS. There are still people that study this. We studied this in the lab um, that I was at in, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
There's still colleagues of mine that do this. So anyway, but that CO2 related, right? That, at least that's the hypothesis. And so CO2 is this really important gas that's in the atmosphere in very low concentrations, right? 0.04% is basically nothing. And um, so that's what our lab studied and how the body reacts to that. And there are these different areas that have these different functions within the brain and they each do a little thing that's a little different. And so I, I studied that for, um, I studied that for about 17 years and I was collaborating with people at the medical college. I, I don't study that part of neural control of breathing anymore. I do more anxiety research and breathing with CO2 now with my colleagues at, the, at Carthage, um, some involved with space and some involved with uh, a, a type of person that has a um, condition that they're born with that's called behavioral anxiety, behavioral inhibition. So it's a temperament that you're born with. And so we use CO2 to study these people and breathing. We haven't been able to do anything since the pandemic started because you can't put a human being on a respiratory machine and study them when you have a respiratory virus going. Yeah, on. no, that's <laughs> so it's kind of put the kibosh on my students and research, but it's hopefully we'll get back to it next spring. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to do it this fall, but maybe next spring we can get back in the lab and start studying this. So that's really fascinating. I'm really interested in, uh, not that this is necessarily it, but there is an aspect of it of, you know, alternative medicine and the yeah. idea that you can fix things, um, you know, without necessarily a drug, but yes. just by readjusting your inner chemistry, whether that's through your diet, I'm yes. sure, there's, I'm sure there's a crossover between what you do yes. uh, and diet. And, and the yes. Wim Hof method is fascinating for that very reason. It's, it's something simple. And now finally, I, your explanation actually makes me understand a little bit more what he's doing because he says that he makes your blood more alkaline. And I Correct. was, and I didn't really know what he meant by that, but now with your explanation, that makes sense. So essentially you, you lower your threshold for the temporarily for the CO2 uh, response, which allows you to not breathe for a much longer time. Correct. Correct. Because you're blowing off so much. See, you're, you're doing what's called hyperventilation. You're actually hyperventilating, which means you're blowing off more CO2. And when you hyperventilate, your blood becomes alkaline, which means that the drive to breathe really goes because that's the drive to breathe, right? It goes away. So you don't have to take a breath. So you literally can hold your breath for a really long time if you become alkaline enough, because there's no reason for you to breathe because you're actually trying to go in the other direction. You're trying to get more CO2 to build up. And the best way to do that is to not breathe. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so, and so alkaline is the opposite of acidic. acidic. So it's Correct. the same as basic. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yep. That's exactly gotcha. right. Yeah, no, it's, it's super cool. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, and so I know you, you, you mentioned briefly also that um, in your bio that you are able to talk a little bit about diet. Can you yes. explain? So actually first, before I, I go there, is acidity um, a huge, you, you know, like we, we can tend to think of diseases that, you know, there's millions and of possible diseases, but yes. do you think acidity can be a root cause for a lot of them? In it, I, I, so I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to speculate. So I'm going to put it out there, right? Yeah. I, I don't think so because 
the body has two main systems that take care of, of pH, right? One is the lungs, right? Which we just talked about. The other one is the kidneys. And so long-term it's the kidneys that take care of this. Short-term it's the breathing that takes care of it. So assuming that the kidneys and the lungs are functioning pretty well, probably not gonna cause this. So in other words, there are people that have no problems with their kidneys or their lungs, right? So their pH regulation is normal and then they still get cancer. And you don't think it's perhaps because they breathe with their shoulders or something like that? Eh, well, you know, that probably makes them, that, that's a sign that they're stressed probably and they're not breathing correctly. Is it the cause? So, you know, it's tough to say cause and effect. Yeah, very. That, that's a very, it's a very difficult thing to prove. But I mean, it certainly doesn't help if they're not breathing correctly. And, you know, um, there was a, a psychologist, uh, Belisa Vranercheck, who wrote a book. I think I actually have the book here and um, I'll show it to you. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but she wrote a book called Breathe. Yeah, I've heard you of might her. be interested. And so she talks, so she's a psychologist and she talks about breathing and how important it is. And so she does a lot of exercises in there. Uh, it's a great book. So between what she teaches and Wim Hof, absolutely does learning how to control breath, does it probably aid in you being healthier and being more calm and able to, um, to get through times that are stressful? Absolutely. So could the reverse also be true that you're breathing in a certain way because of the stress? that you that's probably gonna not help you be healthy probably true but it's probably the the breathing is a function of something else going on i mean we don't know right but yes learning how to control your breath monks do it right yogis do it and they're able to put themselves in these states where their physiology is more balanced i find so, that fascinating that it is science is is in some weird way, finally catching up to things we've known for yes. thousands, thousands of years. Thousands of years. And it's absolutely true. It's ab So, I mean, this is actually true. So um, I'm, I'm uh, very fond of exercise and weightlifting and strength training. And the same thing has essentially been true for strength training and a lot of other exercise, right? There are things that people have known for centuries, decades that we couldn't prove, right? Some, some of it's bro science, some of it's not. And it's only been in the last 20 or 30 years now that we're starting to, to understand like, hey, some of the things that these old timers said worked actually worked. And now we understand why they worked. And of course, some of it was not, didn't, didn't work, right? But some of it, so in, in, in essence, sometimes science is catching up to reality. And so we think of science as this thing that's static and like, we've always known that. Well, in fact, it's provincial, it's incremental, and we're constantly revising science. So when people say the science, I don't even know what that means, right? Because it's constantly changing because as you learn something, you change, okay, well, it doesn't actually work. We thought it worked like this, but it actually works a little bit differently. Years go by and you're like, well, we tweak that a little bit. And sometimes, you know, we get it wrong. And we're like, oh, we thought it worked one way, but 
now we understand it doesn't work like that at all. But it's really like the, the law. Yes, right. It, it, that's what that's what science is about. It's about being open to understand the data and what does the data tell you and how do you interpret that data and then doing more and more studies to try to prove a hypothesis wrong until you know and it, science is never ending so we, we're never going to stop understanding science we're never going to have to stop doing science right because and so with the breathing and with a lot of this stuff of course yeah we we keep learning and some of the stuff people have known for thousands of years which is fascinating right that's that's what i love about science um but but for some people science has become kind of like a religion and it's not right like it's it's constantly evolving the things i thought when i was at ball state in the mid 90s early 90s about exercise and strength training some of that has remained and we're like okay that's still true that's that's how it works and some of that has been revised and like oh we used to think this and now that's not true and so you, you're constantly learning new things and revising so you have to have an open mind to be a scientist but you also have to be a skeptic right yeah it's it's so funny you say that because um if there's one thing that all my guests have had in common and i've had people from all different uh walks of life with all different kinds of agendas and thoughts and but the the main theme that stays and it's funny because that's actually what i wanted uh because it's my theme is the balance between you know the the idea of skepticism and open-mindedness and and um yeah no it's it's extremely important in science i had uh, my first guest was a uh stanford uh physics researcher so that was crazy as a first guest. Yeah. And, uh, and he talked about how, uh, about just what you're saying now and, and also how in academia uh, things are becoming more and more polarized just because of how yes. everything is going. And yes. so how that's, that runs counter to the scientific method. And, yes. and so it's a little complicated. It's, it's probably a weird time to be a, a scientist and an it advocate is. for slowing things down when everybody's trying to rush into conclusions. That's right. And, and it's become more, for some people, it's actually become like a religion, right? Um, and there, it's become political, which it should never be. It, it should become, I always tell my students, look, I don't care. I don't have a horse in the race. What happens? The, the data are what the data are, right? Like, I just want to know what the truth is. I just mm -hmm. want to understand how something works. I don't care how it works. Like if I have a hypothesis, right? which is a statement about how I think something works. And then I try to falsify that. And I try it once. And if I can't falsify it with one study, then that gives me more evidence that well, maybe I'm right. And then I do it again and I can't do it. And maybe I'm right. And then you, that's what you continually try to do. But you should never as a scientist have a horse in the race, right? Like I want it to come out a certain way. It's not the way it works. We're just trying to understand. And so really to be a scientist, to be a good scientist, you have to be very curious and, and always say, well, I might be wrong. And be humble. If, and be humble. And, and, and then there's something to that in life too, right? To say that I might be wrong. Like I tell my students all the time, like sometimes they'll ask me a question. I don't always have an answer for them. I'll say, I can speculate on this, but I might be wrong. There are certain things that we know better because we've studied them longer, right? So there are certain things like the laws of physics and 
because because they are what they are. But there are other things that are sort of, eh, you know, we just figured this out a decade ago. That's pretty new in science. We got to keep studying it. It may be true. It may continue to be true. It's true as as far as I know, it's true, but that may change in a decade. That may change in two decades. So as long as you have an open mind, it, it's a good way to go through life, right? Because you stay humble, you stay curious. You're not, you're not always looking for the bad, right? You don't automatically assume the bad in anyone or anything. You assume that, you know, that people are curious and you, you like asking questions and the nice thing about science is it's a very collaborative thing too, right? Where you work with people and you get to meet these great, really smart people. The thing that I like most is I get to work and meet with all these brilliant people. I work with these brilliant people at Carthage and, and throughout my life. And I'm in awe of them, right? That I get to do this really cool thing where I get to learn for a living. And then I get to pass that on to students and hopefully they'll get to do the same thing. And then there's no greater achievement. I have a former student of mine who's at um, Alabama getting her MD PhD. So it's a dual degree, right? She'll be a physician and a PhD and she's defending on the 29th. And it's been quite a while since she's graduating. She's graduating with a PhD and then she'll have to finish her last two years of medical school. Well, there's no greater feeling for a professor to have a former student of his to, to achieve. And she's going to way out achieve me. She's way smarter than I've ever been. <laughs> I'll never be that smart. And she's going to help people in so many ways. And, you know, she reached out to me last week and said, Hey, I'd like you to zoom into my dissertation defense. I want you to see what I've done. This is after it's been five, six years. And she's like, I, it'd be really cool. So that's been one of the, the blessings of the pandemic, right? Because whether you're using Zoom or Google Meets or Skype, whatever, right? Like we now have, we have this option that like we're doing this. Yeah, it's more we didn't culturally really understand. It. Yeah, so it's a cool thing, right? And so it's just not everything is bad. Sometimes what appears to be bad ends up being not so bad. And so- you keep, as a scientist, you keep revising that. You're like, you know what? Maybe it wasn't all that bad. I mean, obviously nobody wants anybody to die, right? It's horrible what has happened to people, but there's some good that's come out of this. And we just have to recognize that. And that's helpful to say, well, you know, even out of the bad can come some good. And, and the scientific method is great that way because you're always sort of revising and going back and assessing and saying, you know, maybe we did learn something yesterday. Cool. We made a mistake. Eh, that's fine. No, we won't make that mistake again. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's really nice. I, I think I agree with you. The scientific method is, is um, it's not just about the science, actually. It's, it's, it's not to get, you know, tear jerkery, but it's, it's kind of a way of life. It's a way of seeing yes. things. It's a, yes. it's a, it's a process that was invented that, that, decided hey if we had to be rational about life what's the yep. best way to get there and so that's right. that's what i like about it that's exactly right and it's the best method we have to be as objective as we can be now scientists are human right and we have all of the flaws that everybody else has doesn't matter what your iq is right very smart people make really bad decisions all the time um and so and so because it's a human endeavor and like any human endeavor it's flawed because people will forever be flawed right utopia will never exist but but you know 
you can get better. And that's the beauty of it. You can make mistakes. You can ask questions. You can always get better. And, you know, as long as you compare yourself to yourself and you move through life and you can say, hey, I learned, I improved, I made a lot of mistakes, but I did a lot of good. That's okay too. You know, that, that's a cool thing. And so it's a good way to go through life because, or else you'd just be miserable. Right. Yeah. All you would ever, all you would ever focus on is the bad and never the good. And that, that's just not a good way to live at all. So, yeah, it's, it, I, I enjoy being a scientist. It has been a rough time though. I would agree with your, your first guest that it is a really weird time in science right now because you know, every things that shouldn't be politicized have become politicized, right? Like that's just, it's not good. It's not good for people because we as scientists, we're the, you know, we're more knowledgeable. We're flawed. We're deeply flawed as humans. We all are, but we're supposed to be, you know, at least in our field of expertise, trying to help people understand this. And it shouldn't be what I think it should be. Here's what I, here's what we know. Here's the best information. And this is all we can tell you. This is a rec we can recommend, but ultimately it's up to each individual person to make their own decision, right? Science isn't about telling people what they should think. It's about saying, here's what we've learned. Here's the information we're providing to you because this is what you know your taxpayer dollars are paying for. Take that information and use it the way you need to, to make your own decision. It's not for me to tell you how to think. And I tell that to my students all the time. I'm not here to tell you how to think, right? You have to decide what you do. Anything that I teach you, right? Some of it's going to be flawed. Some of it you're going to agree with. Some of it you're not going to agree with. But it's to get you to think about it and to be able to formulate an opinion and objectively look at something and say, does that make sense? And if it doesn't, how do I go about trying to understand if it's real or not, or if somebody's trying to pull the wool over my eye? And so that's what, that's what it should be. And that's not what it's become right now. It's, it's this really weird, weird time in science, right? So yeah, in science and in everything, really, every, every, everything is becoming so political. And I, I don't, I don't know, or neither do I, do I, do I, do I, do I care where you stand the political aisle. I think it's, 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 there's this weird culture of, yes. of, of, uh, groupthink that's, that's becoming yes. very disturbing. It is very disturbing because, you know, people need to be independent thinkers and use information and make the best decision for you, your family, right? Who am I to tell you how to think, right? Science is just here to provide you information and to do good, right? to do good for people, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what's important. We're all on the same team, right? We all, every person wants the same things for themselves and their children, right? Um, and yet it's just this really weird time that I hope we, you know, maybe I'll write another book about it. Who knows? Yeah. We'll get to talk about it. But, you know, as long as we can think about these things and, and, and say, you know, we can do better, we're going to, We've made mistakes, but, you know, is everybody bad that I don't agree with? No, of course.
course not. Can I agree? With, I don't even agree with myself half the time. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> if I were to talk to myself 10 years ago, I'd probably be like, you're an idiot. Like, what are you talking about? Right? Like I couldn't even agree with myself, but I'm not a bad, I don't think I'm a bad person. I just think, well, I'm pretty naive. So, you know, it's okay to disagree with people and it's okay, okay to sort of have a different perspective. But at the end of the day, you know, the, you can grab a beer or a soda with somebody and sit down and talk about differences and, and, and just learn about each other. Right. And again, at the end of the day, we're just people, when you get people one-on-one and I do this with students a lot, um, people are just people. Yeah. And that's the great thing. And, and when we start, the more we spend time together, I think the better it is for all of us because then we start realizing, Oh, you know, Joe's not so bad, whether he's a conservative or a liberal or whatever, like, like he's just Joe. Right. And I like Joe because we, we go out and we have a cup of coffee every Tuesday and we don't agree on everything, but we have these interesting conversations and he helped me once and I helped him a couple of times and, you know, we're all better off for it. And that's, that's what makes life interesting. It's the spice of life, right? If we were all the same, how boring would that be? It'd I know. Be terrible. I know, but it's this, it's like this weird world. It's like, it's like this weird and it's, it's very like anti-human you know, the, yes. the human vision is a lot more, you know, kind of, uh, let's go a little bit this way. Let's explore here. Let's explore yes. there. Yes. And everything is becoming more and more codified and yes. there's, you know, we prioritize efficiency and it's yes. like, uh, it's, yes. it's so, it's so, uh, cold, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of, um, I, you know, part of my family lived in, in, uh, the Eastern Europe during the tough times there. So, yes. you know, it reminds me of that sort of austerity. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, eh, eh, I don't like yeah. it. Yeah. 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 No, I don't like it. You know, you can, you can be, you can have lots of different opinions and see lots of different places and travel. The beauty of traveling, you get to see people send, we go to Nicaragua. I love the Nicaraguans, right? Nicaraguans has a, you know, a dictator for a president, right? They lean on the socialistic side and we go to this island, but the people are beautiful people. We, we talk to each other. We don't agree about everything, but they're just people. Their kids play like our kids. They have the same problems we have, you know, they're a poor country, but we go there and, and every time I go there, I leave and I'm a better person for going there because I realize I have so much more than these people. And yet they're in some ways, they're more giving than I will ever be. They're yeah. more tolerant than I will ever be. Right. And you see this. And for two weeks after I, so we go like once or twice a year, this trip, it's a class. And uh, for two weeks after I come back, I'm, I feel like a horrible human being. maybe that's not the point of the trip (laughs) yeah yeah, but i feel like a horrible human being i think you should stop going (laughs) yeah but 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 then after that i i am always joyous right because i built these relationships over the last 10 or 12 years and but we do so much good and we connect but again there's a there's a group of people where government to government we don't actually get along and there's a long history between the united states and nicaragua and yet some of my best memories in the last 12 years have been on the island. Ometepe sits in uh, Lake Nicaragua, which is um, the island is made up of two volcanoes. It's the only island in the world 
right? It's about the size of Manhattan and it's built from two volcanoes. One's active and one's dormant. And it's in the Lake Nicaragua, which is about the size of Puerto Rico and an island the size of Manhattan that's got two volcanoes on it is where <laughs> we go. And it's the poorest part of the poorest or the second poorest country in the Western hemisphere, right? And you go there and you learn about life because you're com almost completely, not completely disconnected from technology and you're sweating all the time and there's no air conditioning and you can't use your hair roller and you're eating yeah, you're connected to reality. You're connected to the reality of what it is like to be poor for two weeks, right? Not completely, not like the Nicaraguans, but, and so it makes me a better person when I go there. Um, and so it's something I recommend that everybody does at least once in their life to go on a trip like that, where you're like, you know, maybe my life isn't so bad. Yeah. You know, maybe United States isn't so bad. Like, <laughs> we complain about a lot of things, but maybe we shouldn't complain so much yeah. because, you know, I have air conditioning. They don't have air conditioning. Their air conditioning is a breeze through the window, right? So, yeah, I agree. It's a kind of a weird time, but I am very optimistic and hopeful for us uh, that we will turn it around as a community, as a country as a planet and we'll start getting back to trying to figure out how to solve problems and work together. And I think that's just a better way to live and not be angry all the time because it's just not healthy for anybody. Right. Um, so hopefully we can, we can go there and, um, you know, try to make the world a better place. Service is important service. Um, the book that we wrote, I know I keep talking about it, but because no, well, you're so, the, please do. <laughs> the, the faculty member, my colleague who passed away um, two years ago now, uh, Pat Foffel started this trip and we dedicated the book to him and, and he taught us how to serve. He had been in Nicaragua in the late 70s, right before the revolution happened. And he spent nine months there. He's from, originally from Wisconsin, learned how to speak Spanish and live with the Nicaraguan family. And that's what he started this trip. And, you know, one of the best human beings I've ever met in my life. And we dedicated the book to him. He passed from pancreatic cancer. And he taught us how to serve and be grateful. And I've been blessed to have been going on this trip um, since the first year I was there as a faculty member. And I've continued to go on it. Um, so again, that, that's part of the, the, you know, the inspiration for this book too, because all of us that wrote this book, um, were touched by Pat. And so we, again, our students, our patients, Pat. And so, you know, it's kind of come full circle for us. It's kind of a cool thing, a cool project that, um, hopefully it touches others' lives. Like it's touched us and it's kind of cool. So, Yeah. yeah. No, congratulations. Uh, where Thank can you. where can people find your book? Sure, um, you can find our book on Amazon in the ebook form. You can find the book in paperback and ebook form on Barnes and Nobles. You can also find it in paperback and ebook form on uh, go to bookbaby.com, the bookshop, um, and there's several others. But uh, yeah, it's it, hopefully people will buy the book. Hopefully they will enjoy the book. Hopefully we get feedback and. And maybe people will inspire us to write another book. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a labor of love, and I, I really appreciate you having me on to, to talk about this and some other things. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and 
Um, I'd love to come back at some point and uh, chat again and, and uh, get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, I would love to. This has been a very interesting conversation and I really appreciate you coming on too. And uh, of course, I'll put the links on uh, to your, to your book and, and hopefully people get it. Uh, I might grab a copy. I'm, I'm really interested in the concept and the more I learn about it, there's, there's a, you know, the significance with uh, the Nicaraguan trip. And so it's, it's a very beautiful story and I, I'd love to be a part of it in some way. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Take care, AJ. Have a good Thank one. You. Bye. Please like, follow, subscribe, comment on whatever platform you're using. It genuinely helps me. So if you enjoyed it, give me some of that free love. Thanks.